Hello there. Before we get started on the latest Walk podcast, just a reminder that the Walk Awards for Effectiveness are back and they're bigger and better than ever. We've expanded from six categories to 11, so if you can show your work has worked, there'll be a category for you. Entries are now open and best of all, they're free. Head to walk.com for more details and to download your entry pack. Remember to submit before the deadline on the 29th of March. Good luck. Now, let's get to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name's David Tiltman and this episode is the final part of a special three-part series that looks at creative effectiveness. Now, we've been looking at work that has worked and asking what you can learn from it. Now, to do this, uh, we'll be using campaigns from the Walk Awards for Effectiveness, looking at the work that won last year. And remember, if you haven't got the message yet, that this year's awards are very much open for entries. Now, joining me in this series is Amy Rogers, Head of Content for Walk Creative, which looks at all things creative effectiveness. And in this third episode in the series, we're going to be turning our attention to what's called Brands in Culture and how sort of cultural insight and a culture-led approach was used to capture the attention of target audiences in our 2022 award winners. So Amy, why don't you kick off by telling us why you've chosen this as our third topic from last year's winners? Hi, David. So yeah, our our final episode. So um, I thought we'd look today at kind of attention and and how, like you say, so brands and culture are capturing that attention, which is is what all marketers are striving for, right? Maximising attention for their brand through reaching as many consumers as possible. Um, And as we know, gaining that attention is becoming harder and harder. So as we talked about in a previous episode, media fragmentation means audience fragmentation. And today, the amount of information available to people vastly outweighs their ability to actually pay attention to it, let alone digest and remember it. So this is the so-called attention economy, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So where attention is scarce, but, but a valuable resource. Um, and, and, and that attention means that, that marketers are uh, having to find where their target audiences are, and capture their attention in that space uh, using, you know, creative tactics. So when I was looking at papers from last year's Walk Awards for Effectiveness, um, the use of kind of brands in culture or, or cultural authenticity, as that is used in quite a lot of the papers, um, uh, to speak to specific tar- target audiences was something um, that was used across a, a number of the winning campaigns. Um, and I should say that that wasn't just in our culture and collaboration category. Um, we saw examples of cultural insights being used across categories. Um, so today I've picked out three of those campaigns to discuss. Um, each drove attention by putting their brands into culture within those target audiences that they were looking to capture. Great, thank you. So it, it is a really interesting topic. And I think the first campaign is one that we have uh, covered quite a lot on, on Walk. It's, it's uh, been fantastically successful. And it comes from McDonald's, right? Yeah, exactly. So we're going to be talking about the famous orders campaign, um, which, as you say, you know, we we've got some clips in this from from a talk at Cannes last year. Their their um, VP of marketing, JJ Heelan, presented at that, and um, yeah, won lots of awards um, generally over over a few years now. Um, and and I'll just start by noting generally how effective McDonald's is with its marketing. Um, our effective one hundred ranking has been 
um, ranking brands based on their performance in effectiveness award shows since 2014. And McDonald's have placed at the top of that ranking for the last three years. Um, and in 2019, they were second. Um, our 2023 rankings launch in March. So watch this space for if they continue that trend. But, you know, a really, really good streak of effectiveness for McDonald's. Um, yeah, so a super effective brand already globally. Um, and, and that's something that's really evident when we look at McDonald's uh, global portfolio of award wins. They're, they're not just in the US and they're not just winning awards there. Um, obviously, the brand is very dominant in the US, um, but they do effective work in Austria, in Brazil, China, Mexico, India. You know, the list goes on. Um, I think in this year's rankings, McDonald's recorded wins in something like 25 different markets. Yeah. So, so a very effective brand. Yeah, they've they've really been on a bit of a winning streak in the last few years, and I think, um, as you say, we had we had a couple of sessions with McDonald's in Cannes last year, and what really struck me is is not just the uh, the the brilliance of this particular campaign, but how they'd been on a bit of a mission over the past few years to really raise uh, raise the idea of brand creativity and really reconnecting with culture, and that. That process seems to have transformed their marketing uh, into a really sort of powerful engine over the last few years. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's exactly what McDonald's were aiming for with this campaign, um, Famous Orders. Um, the objective wasn't awareness. Um, it was reconnecting with their fans through authentic cultural links with their target audience. Um, so that audience was multicultural youth. They really wanted to resonate with that with that audience. Um, and, and they recognized for that that the brand needed a cultural cachet, like traditional channels like linear TV don't work so well for that younger demographic because they live online and on social media. Um, and if you're not present there, you're out of mind. So the aim was to create hype in that younger demographic with this campaign. Um, so to kick off, like I said earlier, JJ Heelan from McDonald's, their US VP of marketing, spoke at Can Lion Festival last year. Um, so here's a clip where she talks about how the brand tried to reconnect with its customer base um, as a starting point for this campaign. So for those who know McDonald's, there are two sides of us. There's like the big global corporate brand that we are, the company that we are. But most importantly, there is your McDonald's. It's the brand that you grew up with. It's the one that has those memories and moments that you remember all through like growing up, even to today. It's where you know your order and we know your order. And it's something that has been really special. And that's actually, you know what, that's something we needed to dig into a little bit. So that was our jumping off point. Yeah, this was this was a real highlight of um, Walk's programming in Cannes last year. And I, I remember JJ talking about the marketing team going back to what they called fan truths. Um, and and that was, I think that was what was interesting about it. You know, we, we've sort of got a bit um, uh, shy about talking about fans and people who really love the brand because, you know, we all know it's about light buyers and then, you know, increasing penetration, all those sorts of things. But, but I thought what they did quite interestingly was use some of those insights from uh, you know, people who who really do use the brand a lot, heavy users of the brand. Uh, and, you know, they were coming up with things like, is there anyone out there who doesn't eat the bits of cheese stuck to the burger wrapper? Or, you know, the friend who will take a fry after they said they didn't want any. 
Yeah, exactly. And and those small fan truths that they'd identified rolled up into into overall brand truths. Um, and the one used for this campaign, that everyone has a McDonald's order, ended up standing for an entire platform idea that they used over a number of years. So the idea was, no matter how big or famous you are, everyone has a McDonald's order. Now, that this famous orders campaign kicked off with a Super Bowl ad in 2020, um, and it's such a fun ad if you haven't seen it. It's basically shot from directly above a McDonald's tray um, and with what's on the tray kind of flicking through lots of different celebrities' McDonald's orders. And this sparked a really big social media reaction, as Super Bowl ads have a tendency to do. Um, pe- people love to see what all these famous people ate at McDonald's. And it started a huge wave of people sharing their own orders on social media and all the different nuances of their specific orders Um, But the key insight for the follow-up campaign was that people wanted to actually order those exact celebrity meals in restaurants and were calling out for it on social media. Yeah, and that's that's key, isn't it? That that sort of, it's not just the sort of idea, it's the ability to follow through in in the restaurants. And there were some weird ones, weren't there? I mean, like Kim Kardashian dipping her chicken nuggets in honey was one that sort of made my toes curl a bit. Yeah, interesting. And and they kind of extended it from from actual celebrities into fictional ones. So they had kind of a whole plate of um, ketchup sachets and that was Dracula's order, which I quite liked as well. That reaction, that that question of can you actually get this in the restaurant, that, that was the insight for the, for the extension of the campaign that went deeper into those celebrity collaborations. So they went from one ad that just showed um, what that celebrity ate to finding four celebrities um, to make their orders available at restaurants for people to order and, ha- and have a whole campaign around each one of those four. Um, and, and the ultimate goal was to turn going to McDonald's into a kind of cultural event so that for a moment fans could could eat like like their celebrity hero. Um, and this was after months of COVID lockdown. So, so actually going to McDonald's, going to a restaurant physically was something that people hadn't actually been able to do. So there was that extra objective of, of jumpstarting the business again after COVID. So here's another clip from JJ um, talking about the need to find celebrities who had uh, an authentic association with the brand. So with this, how do we then find the right person? It's interesting when you think about how brands partner with celebrities we were really hard on ourselves to make sure we were doing it in the right way. It was not about association. It was not about borrowed equity at all. We wanted to find someone who was a brand fan first and foremost. Brand fans first. They just happened to be famous. So if you think about fan to fan, that was our tried and true. It's what we start and how we start the conversation every single time. It's not about borrowed equity. It's not about association. We don't need it. We don't need awareness. We don't need it. But what we need is authenticity. And that's where this all began. That's a great clip from JJ. There probably aren't many brands that are saying they're not looking for awareness. They're not with a celebrity for about borrowing equity. They they just really need authenticity and to, to operate in culture authentically. Interesting background. They kicked off with the Travis Scott meal, right? Yeah, exactly. So like I said, they, they, they found four celebrities who were big McDonald's fans and, and, and turned their go-to order into the basis for the campaign, the first of which was Travis Scott. Um, so there ended up being four main launches, each one featuring a different celebrity and their own unique McDonald's order. And, and while the idea was the same for each of the four, the execution was specific to that celebrity. So with Travis Scott, he was known for 
his action figures and his merch. Um, so that featured quite heavily in his campaign. Um, this was a US focused campaign. So they're all quite US centric celebrities. Um, Balvin was the second celebrity. He loves neon and bling. So that featured quite heavily in his. Um, so yeah, each one was specific to that celebrity. Um, let me play one more clip where JJ talks about that uniqueness within the consistency of the campaign. Okay, we did four of them. And these brand fans were amazing partners. Travis Scott, Jay Balvin, BTS, and Sweetie. But they all were so unique in their own way. Their fans and our fans became fans together. These partners took the campaign into their own hands and made it their own. So when you think about platform ideas, there's got to be consistency. But what actually rose above was uniqueness within the consistency. So this is this is like the holy grail of uh, like brand advertising, isn't it? It's this fresh consistency. You can you can keep being creative, but with a uh, can keep being unique, as as JJ says, but with a consistency uh, that that sits underneath it. Yeah, and something I thought was interesting from the, from that presentation at Cannes was that this consistent platform idea actually marked a step change in their marketing strategy. So, you know, you say this is the holy grail, but actually it was still part of a work in progress for for McDonald's. Um, their strategy had previously been very promotion heavy and without that consistency through the year. Um, JJ said that they'd had 26 campaigns within 12 months in 2019, um, whereas this campaign kicked off a shift to three brand stories through the year. And they did have different activations, what she called chapters of those brand stories, but it was really very different from the promotional led, very quick, um, short campaigns. And it worked, yeah? It did, yeah. Uh, well, it won an award in our collaboration and culture category uh, at last year's Walk Awards for Effectiveness. Um, but to put some numbers against it, they found that the customers of the famous order meals were overwhelmingly young and multicultural. So that target audience that they've been looking for. Um, and those meals from the four celebrities meant that they served 1.2 million more 18 to 24 year olds um, on average per month versus 2019. It brought in $280 million in incremental sales um, with an ROI of between 2 and $9, depending on which of the four meals it was. So some really big numbers there. Um, it, it also, the Travis Scott meal specifically broke the McDonald's supply chain. So there were shortages of, of beef, onions, uh, lettuce, and even Sprite at some restaurants across the US. And and one funny thing, they um, people were stealing the point of sale posters from, from the Travis Scott meals from restaurant windows, which is... Which is pretty niche. You're not you're not going to expect that from a normal campaign. Um, so that grabbed even more attention for the campaign. So it's a bit of a win-win. Yeah, there's so much more to unpack in this in this campaign, but we better leave it there for this particular podcast. Uh, a reminder that the the several versions of the case study are are on Walk Plus, of course, that talk from JJ Heelan at Cannes last year. So do go and check that out once you've finished the podcast. If you are indeed a Walk subscriber. Okay, so Amy, what have what have we got next? So a very different campaign next. Um, this is a brand purpose campaign for Harley Davidson in the Canadian market. Um, it won bronze in our brand purpose category in last year's um, awards. And I chose this one because I found both the insight and the solution for the campaign quite interesting. Um, 
this is an example of not just a, a communications campaign. Um, the brand leveraged industrial design to produce a new product intended to benefit a, a, a specific, very small target audience, but generate much wider perception change and positive awareness for the brand. So quite different in targeting from the McDonald's campaign, which was targeted at, at the younger kind of masses. This was a very small, quite niche audience. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, because when we talk about brands and culture, we're often thinking about what springs to mind, I guess, is is brands in youth culture. And and the um, the, the McDonald's uh, example was very much part of that. But But this is a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So um, this is a campaign for Harley Davidson, which has obviously got a very different target audience from from McDonald's. And um, but but they did have a perception challenge around that the the, the generally accepted audience of, of of Harley Davidson, like a like a few of the campaigns we've discussed in this series, is perceived to be the choice of of old white males. Um, and that's kind of because it's often that's shown as the rider demographic in TV shows and films. Um, but the Harley Davidson brand is built around the kind of love and freedom of the open road. That's what they want to portray in their advertising, regardless of race or background. Um, so, so the overall message they wanted to send was around diversity and inclusion. Um, and the overall target for that obviously is huge. It's the general public as a whole. Um, in their words, inclusion happens when everyone in society supports it. Um, but they captured attention of that wider audience via a much more niche audience and that was Sikh riders. Sikh as in the the uh, the religion. The religion, exactly, yeah. Okay, tell us more. So the insight for the campaign was the fact that the foundations of the brand that kind of like I said the love and freedom of the open road was for Sikh riders coming at the expense of their safety and their cultural identity. So Sikh men wear turbans, which obviously makes wearing a traditional motorbike helmet impossible. Um and because of this, in 2018, the Ontario government passed legislation that exempts Sikh men from um, from the law that requires people to wear a helmet while riding a motorbike. Um, and then other provinces followed Ontario, which I, I thought was kind of surprising in itself that that law had been passed. So Sikh men in Ontario and, and following that other parts of Canada don't have to wear motorbike helmets because it means they'd have to remove their turbans. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is obviously respecting their religion, but puts them at a much greater risk of, of head injury um, if they were to have an accident. Um, the agency working on this campaign was um, Zulu Alpha Kilo in Toronto. Um, and one of its creative directors was of Sikh heritage and, and himself was a Harley Davidson rider. Um, and so he kind of knew about this, this quite specific niche insight and saw an opportunity to address the safety issue in a positive way for both the Sikh community, and for Harley-Davidson. Um, so what they did was to produce the Tough Turban, which is a turban made out of a, a prototype fabric that could function as a turban, but would also protect the heads of the riders if they had an accident. Um, so I've got a clip here from the case study video, which tells you a bit more. Without my sense of pride or my religion or my turban, it's uh, kind of like, who are you or what are you? 
tradition is really important for a product like this. When Sikhs used to ride into battle, they used to have chainmail, and then they used to tie their turbans on, on, on top of that. And so we took a look at a chainmail-like matrix that would be incorporated into the traditional feeling turban. So the Dyneema is used in bulletproof clothing. We started to look at some non-Newtonian foams. One of the real exciting aspects of the foam is that it hardens on impact. So it really helps protect the rider. When I first saw the Harley-Davidson Tough Turban, it really blew my mind in terms of the technology that they were using. Yeah, this is, this is cool. This makes us feel part of the Harley family. So this episode is about brands building in culture or, or, or taking a sort of culture-first approach. So let's dig a bit more into that, that idea that you can uh, build around a cultural approach or cultural insight and how this campaign captured attention as a result. Yeah, so so the message of diversity and inclusion was a really important one for Harley, as those perceptions that I spoke about earlier were really entrenched in some markets, particularly in America, where where Harley is actually often associated with um, with white supremacist groups, so a fairly negative um, association for Harley. Uh, and and though its global customer base is actually quite diverse, those kind of negative associations can can often overwhelm. The more positive messages, um, and that makes brand growth really difficult. But this quite unique cultural insight that Sikhs were more at risk because of their cultural identity um, was used as a wider message about Harley Davidson's brand purpose, um, that freedom of the open road, and that quite um, quite you know niche cultural insight connected with a global audience. Um, so the story got picked up by media outlets around the world. And I think the fact that they actually produced a solution rather than just communicating a need was was key to the campaign's success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The 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 whole thing wouldn't have worked if they were just sort of highlighting a need, but it 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 it, it needed them to actually go and solve something. Yeah, exactly, and solve the problem. And and the and the case study they talks about how much in depth they go into with the with the research into the different materials and things like that. So yeah, it was actually the production of the the, the actual tough turban that made this a success. Yeah, and it sort of reminds me a little bit of some of the work Volvo did uh, over the past few years on on crash test dummies and and life paint and some of those things, which which maybe not quite the same cultural insight, but 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 went into you know tried to use some of these innovations to uh, uh, to get people thinking differently about the brand. Yeah, exactly. They're all really good examples of of an open source product because they made this technology available to everyone. It wasn't, you know, trademarked to to Harley Davidson. Um, you know, creating a product as a communications tool to capture attention through through a lot of earned media. Okay, so we better move on to our third and final campaign for this episode. So, so what have you come up with, Amy? So the final campaign for today, and in fact, for the series, um, is for US peanut butter brand Jif. Um, So this campaign sits alongside the McDonald's campaign we spoke about earlier quite nicely because it's another use um, of uh, celebrity to connect culturally with a younger demographic of consumers. Um, So we're going back to that kind of mass um, consumer targeting that, um, that McDonald's did. And again, it's the the kind of authenticity part that was credited for the for the success of the campaign. Um, so this is called the Little GIF Project, um, and it won the Grand Prix in our collaboration and culture category in last year's Walk Awards for Effectiveness. 
And the campaign centred around a partnership with rapper Ludacris, and it had three aims. Uh, to increase category share by increasing share of search and to drive taste recognition and ownership. Right, you're going to have to explain what taste recognition means in the world of peanut butter. Yeah, it's one I hadn't seen in the case study before, but um, for nut butter people, apparently, taste is the leading purchase driver. So Jif needed to get more people to recognise Jif as the best tasting peanut butter. Okay, and why were they targeting the younger demographic for this campaign? Presumably peanut butter buyers are a pretty broad bunch. Yeah, but they felt like this would be the biggest area of growth for the brand. So for years, they'd just targeted parents and mums specifically. Um, but the category buyer was changing, so they needed to change too. Um, so during Cannes Lion Festival last year, we spoke to Jennifer Baldwin and Erica Roberts from Publicist New York about the campaign. Um, and I've pulled out a clip here where Jennifer talks about the motivation for the work. Yeah, so the biggest thing we were trying to um, achieve when this campaign for GIF was to build relevance with a younger peanut butter buyer. Um, so uh, the biggest competitor, Skippy, had been just launched a new campaign, was way outspending GIF. And, uh, you know, the brand had like a 60 year history of targeting parents. You know, they had this campaign, Choosy Moms Choose GIF, which was really effective for a really long time. But over time, the category buyer was changing and they just weren't having a relevant conversation with them and needed to refresh how we approached it. And so, you know, in thinking about a younger consumer, we really wanted to create something that connected with them culturally because we know that they expect brands and want brands that are really a part of their culture. So it's similar to what we were talking about earlier with McDonald's, um, that existing traditional marketing wasn't working for this younger category buyer because it wasn't showing up where they were on, on online and on social media channels. Um, and like I said earlier, there's been audience fragmentation alongside media fragmentation. So finding target audiences isn't just about selecting the right media, but it's also about finding connections in other ways. So through celebrities, um, through influences, through events, um, finding those audiences where they are and, and connecting with common interests. So how did that actually manifest itself in in terms of a uh, an ad for nut butter or a campaign for nut butter well let me just explain the insight that led to the campaign so it makes sense as i think that it took some great imagination from the client agency team to get to the campaign they finished with um so they did some social listening and and stumbled on the link between today's rappers which are often referred to as mumble rappers which was a new one to me as well but mumble rappers um and peanut butter so they heard people saying that um it sounded like these new artists these new mumble rappers were rapping with a mouthful of peanut butter so there's your link with the target audience you've got younger rap fans and you've got peanut butter um but how you turn that into a campaign um so they enlisted Ludacris, who's a, a legendary rapper from uh, the, the 2000s, um, and they partnered with him to release his first single in six years. Um, but that new single, it didn't sound like the old Ludacris or his old work. Um, they paired him with a rapper called Gunner, which is one of these kind of so-called mumble rappers, um, and they created the Little Jeff Project. So here's a clip from the case study video that explains the campaign in a bit more detail. In the past decade, a heated rivalry has emerged in rap culture. We call it mumble rap. I just don't understand because I don't see where I'd be mumbling. The latest generation has been described as sounding like they rap with peanut butter in their mouth. 
So we thought, what if America's biggest peanut butter brand could unite both new and old rap generations? And with that, the Lil Jeff Project was born. First, we enlisted old-school rap legend Ludacris to record a track with mumbled vocals and new-school rap star Gunna to validate it. That flow crazy. The track was promoted, and then it dropped online. Speculation began to grow around Luda's new flow and continued when iconic rap jeweler Icebox created a 37-carat GIF jar that Ludacris teased on The Breakfast Club. Finally, it was revealed to the world that GIF peanut butter was the secret behind Luda's new flow. One more time. And just to explain what was happening at the end of the case study there, um, Ludacris... Uh, eats a mouthful of Jif and then continues to rap, hence all, all the mumbling. There's quite a lot going on here. And I guess for a nut butter brand that has previously been, had much more of a sort of family approach, this is a bit, this is a bit risky. Yeah, they're, 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 they're sort of stepping into uncomfortable areas. Yeah, very different from their existing marketing that they've been using, like Jennifer said earlier, for years. Um, and one thing I thought was interesting when we spoke to to Jennifer and Erica at, at Cannes, Erica said that getting it right was the only option. Um, and that's worth noting, right, that entering into culture is risky if you get it wrong. Um, it's something where your target audience could turn away from you completely if the tone or the messaging or your partner was wrong. Um, or, or simply if they felt like your your entry into, into culture, into their kind of area was engineered rather than authentic. Um, so like McDonald's, Jif found a celebrity partner that was a true brand fan. So the partnership wasn't just transactional. It would continue beyond the campaign through Ludacris, um, in this case, through his own fan base. Um, so here's Erica talking about that partnership. This has been such a labor of love, this campaign for us. Um, and getting it right was the only option for us, particularly entering a brand into a part of culture where we had no history um, and it was really all about finding the right partners, not just to, to partner with, but to really co-create with. Um, you know, everything from obviously finding Ludacris, who, yes, is part of the hip-hop culture, but I think that next level down was that he was a true GIF fan, um, loves GIF, eats it every single day. And so just his love for the brand itself came through in the work and his desire to partner with us and write an amazing song and, you know, get his friends on board and the entire community on board just brought everything to the next level uh, in terms of authenticity. Okay, so I'm, I'm interested in this this comment that getting it right was the only option because that's that's you know there's risk associated there if you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Uh, how did they sort of mitigate that risk? What was going on under the surface to ensure ensure it was going to be a success? So, so they put this down to really doing the research. So, not glamorous, but but really necessary to get something like this right. Um, they made sure that they worked with a celebrity that fans were going to engage with, a genuine fan fan of the brand, um, like McDonald's did with Travis Scott, so that fans believed in the partnership. Um, and and they did that, like I said, through research, through collaborating with their target audience before um, before they went anywhere near the campaign. Um, so here's Jennifer with a final tip on that research factor. Another lesson that I would pass on to anybody else who wanted to kind of similarly work, you know, and collaborate within culture is that we use consumer research quite differently. 
So rather than just check with category consumers whether or not the idea was clear and they understood it and were persuasive, we really enrolled like cultural um, collaborators, really. We found hip hop fans and to like work with us to help us understand what they were really passionate about within the idea and where, you know, where we could help hone it and sharpen it along the way. So I'm assuming it was effective. Uh, so, so why don't you give us some results? Uh, well, the campaign definitely gained the attention that it was looking for. Um, there was mass social sharing among the target audience. People were doing their own raps with a, with a spoonful of GIF um, and sharing them on TikTok. Um, so they increased uh, their share of voice over the campaign from 37% to 60%. So more than double that of Skippy, which was its main rival. Um, in terms of the other two objectives, so share of search, um, search traffic spiked within the challenge and it continues to rise um, steadily months after launch. Um, so despite it already being a household name, um, consumers were convinced by the campaign and, and kind of continued to increase its consideration within those households. Um, and finally, in terms of share of market, um, GIF achieved its highest market share in over 10 years. Um, and was able to grow even while that category began to contract after a big boost from initial COVID-19 um, grocery spending. Thank you, Amy. And of course, that case study is available on Walk, as are all the others, not just in this episode, but in this entire three-part series on creative effectiveness. Um, so thank you, Amy. It's been a fascinating series. We've had three really interesting episodes looking at very different things. Uh, we will be back next time on the walk podcast and if you like what you hear please do follow us uh, or subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and if you like what you hear do leave us a review until next time thanks for listening <laughs>